Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of LSAT Pros. I'm Steve Schwartz from the LSAT blog. And I'm Graham Blake from LSAT Hacks. And today we're answering your questions on logical reasoning. So we've got a bunch lined up for you here and let's let's jump right in. So the first one is, how do I effectively return to questions I've marked as unsure, especially in LR? I've had trouble second guessing myself and changing an answer that turned out to be right, not necessarily because I thought the other was better, but because I was unsure. I also have trouble returning to the questions at all. Like if I make it through the whole section, my brain feels fuzzy and I have trouble re-entering the question. So two parts there, second guessing yourself and changing answers. The other part is returning back to questions when you, you have a trouble re-entering. So I'll address the first part, uh, changing answers, second guessing yourself. A lot of times I notice that students change answers from wrong to right, as well as from right to wrong but they only notice the ones they changed from right to wrong because the ones that you get wrong stand out to you. So you might want to actually track everything you are unsure of and then see when you're changing them, how often you're changing in a direction you want to change them in. What are your thoughts, Grant? Yeah, I tell students the exact same thing, that you've got to measure what's not visible. Um, but let's say, assuming that they've measured it and actually they are mostly changing it from uh, right to wrong. I mean, I guess in that case, the solution is easy, like, don't change it. <laughs> um, or, but I mean, the, the better, the better answer is do an analysis and think like, why were you changing it? And how could you have been sure? And this is, this is a slower process because it involves actually getting better at the underlying thing. But you have to think like, what was the thing that I could have seen at the time that could have made me sure? And uh, how do I get that? And, and the other thing too, is just to get comfortable with uncertainty. Um, because Every question is worth the same thing as everything else. And if you got it down to 50-50 and you usually are right and that it's one of those two, that's worth half a point, um, which is not nothing. And unless, you know, you've just got this, like, all over the place, it's not the worst outcome in the world. And you can focus on narrowing it down to only changing it when you can feel like, all right, I have a reason for choosing this and I can feel that it's right or I can prove that it's right versus, like, oh, I've just got a feeling here. Because when I'm unsure between two things and I come back and I check it, Either I find something that shows me what to do, and then I choose that, or I'm still just sort of lost, and I'll, I think I may even default to, like, leaving it to where I left it. I'm not really sure what I do, but I never just change something because I'm generally in doubt. I aim to try and have a reason, and if I don't have a reason and can't find one, I'll put my time elsewhere. Yeah, I think that's that's a, that's a good guideline. I, I kind of think as, as if there's this standard or bar that you have to cross, or a threshold you have to cross in order to have a reason to change from your previous default, especially if you, let's say you invested a minute and a half or two minutes on your initial attempt at the question, you go through the rest of the section, you come back later, and then with another 15 to 20 seconds, you're suddenly a little bit concerned, but that you've only invested a small percentage of your previous time on your second look. And so that's the sort of situation where I think that stress or doubt or adrenaline pumping can make you suddenly question everything, but you may be between two uncertain or vague answers. And so in that sort of case, I wouldn't necessarily suggest switching it. But like I said, well, like, like you said, Graham, I think the idea of having some sort of tool or key that you look at that can help you unlock it, I think that's definitely a major kind of aha moment that can change it. Yeah, you made me think of something actually by saying that you, know, you spent most of your time on your first look is that, you know, people underrate the role of intuition on the LSAT. 
um, a lot of the decisions we make uh, are done because our mind saw something that we can't quite fully explain in words. And the better we get, the higher level this gets so that we can explain more stuff in words, but still when we're reaching at the limits of our ability, that's when intuition is working and we can't really explain it. And if you spent a while with something and you sort of had an answer picked, your intuitive mind may have hit on something that your rational mind isn't yet aware of, and when you go back and look at it, you may no longer have that intuition, and so you're just sort of looking at two things and you don't know what's going on. So if you've got a reason, then yeah, change it, because you've actually found something that can show, but if not, just defer to your past intuition. And I think that can be a good guideline for when to switch and when not to switch. I'm glad you raised that idea of intuition, because I think that's what so much of the LSAT really is. Very little of it is formal logic. A lot of it is just having a good understanding of their method of reasoning. And I think part of what I do with students, and you probably do this too, is to help them extract the general principles underlying the arguments. But there's not always necessarily a clear name for what that principle might be. It's maybe unique to that particular situation or type of situation. And so having that vague general sense of it could be enough to guide you, especially on a lot of the easier questions, I think. Mm -hmm. um, so for the second bit, having trouble re-entering the question, there's two things I can think of here. Like one is, this may partly be an endurance issue. Like if your old brain feels fuzzy after it, then, well, it sounds like you're tired. Um, so potentially you could give yourself like small breaks through the section or take like a 20 second break after finishing the section before looking back. Cause it's no sense. Like if your brain is all fuzzy, you're not going to get anything done. So you're not wasting time by taking time to take a break. You're refreshing your brain. Um, but you could take little breaks throughout to try and avoid pushing your brain over the limit. And you could also try doing like five or six section prep tests to increase your endurance um, to see if you can train it better. But the other thing is to, to make it easier for your brain you could have some sort of a method. So the method could be, for example, you look back and you think like, all right, what's the conclusion? What's the reasoning? And use that as your way to like gently re-enter the question. Um, and I think that's what I do. I, I want to just say like, all right, what's going on in this question here? Okay, now I remember what's going on in the stimulus. Now let's look at the answers, what's going on there. And like, just you don't just look at it and like try and do it. You look for specific things you can latch onto that refresh it in your mind, and then you go from there. Yeah, I think that's a good that's a good point, especially the idea of if you're fuzzy taking a break. I think that's honestly the biggest thing that stood out to me from what you said, Graham, because if you have three three minutes or even five minutes at the end of a section, then you can afford to take 15, 20, maybe even 30 seconds before you go back and handle the toughest questions that came earlier. And when you talk about having trouble re-entering the question, keep in mind that these are some of the hardest questions, most likely. They're the ones that you skipped and wanted to return to later. And so it's natural that you might have trouble with the most difficult questions of the section, of course. And so one thing you could do is get better at identifying those tough questions at the outset so that you're not investing undue time in them initially. Maybe you just ID them as tough questions and flag them immediately, skip them, move on, come back later. So you're not really re-entering. You're rather attempting the toughest questions for the first time. If your brain is fuzzy then anyway, and your odds are relatively lower on those questions anyway, at least you're saving them for last. All right, so anything else you wanted to cover with this question, Graham? I think we covered it fairly well, but if anything else stood out. No, I think that's good. So uh, I'll read the next one. So it's, has LR gotten more difficult? And are there any specific exams you could point to that would serve as good indicators of what to expect on the next test? 
I think yes, but I don't have like super solid grounds. My my two points of evidence here are like one, people say it's getting more difficult, and two, uh, I've noticed in my own explanations I tend to need more words to explain the most recent tests. And this isn't just, you know, like it's me later in time I've gotten wordier because I'm also currently writing explanations for older tests and those tend to be shorter. So like the same 2019 gram writing like new and old stuff needs more words for the new stuff. That's an interesting uh, gauge there. I think that DLR has gotten more difficult. I hear it from students and well, it doesn't it's hard to measure because the questions are so bite-sized and individual. What I can say is that even starting back in the exams in the 50s, they started becoming more clever with question stems and question types, having new ways to describe old question types, even flaw questions or principal application questions. And I think that the unfamiliar words and phrases in the question stems often throw students off. So that's one way to make it more difficult. And then I think just the, the general methods of reasoning in the stimuli are also more difficult. And as far as exams to point to as good indicators of the next exam, I'd always say the most recent exams are the most relevant. So if you're listening now, then you want to do tests in the 80s. If you're listening in a few years, you want to do tests in the 90s. But most recent is always the best indicator. Yeah, pretty much. Like, you know, it's one thing to say it's harder now, but what should I do about it? Well, there's not really anything to do, unfortunately. The the reason, if it is harder, the reason I think it's harder is just because people are studying more, so they had to raise the difficulty to adapt, and that's just it. But you did say something very interesting about, you know, them, like, changing up the things they do. And I think that does get to the core of, like, the one thing you can do to make sure you're prepared, which is that you don't just memorize a specific form, and instead you try and understand what's going on underneath it. So, for example, on, like, sufficient assumption questions, uh, there used to be a common trend where you could, like, take the conclusion, split it apart, fill in the evidence, and then there would be a gap, and that was the answer. And I think that became too easy. And so while they still do this sometimes, they don't always do it. But if you understand the principle that you're trying to get from point A to B from like one part of the conclusion to the other, I still find thinking this way helps on the newer sufficient assumption questions, even though it's not as mechanical as it used to be. So the di there's a difference between like just seeing the technique when not really understanding it, but being able to apply it versus knowing what's fundamentally going on. And if you know what's fundamentally going on, a lot of the things they do to throw people that are harder uh, won't affect you. Not all of them, because some things are just, you know, it's harder. And the, the only way to get better at that is to get better. That's a great distinction. There's there's knowing how to use the formula and then knowing why the formula works. And so that's what I think is the difference between the 160s and the 170s, potentially. Something in that range where can you blindly follow a technique and just plug in the variables for X and Y or whatever it may be and then get your result, predict your answer. That's great for some questions, but then for the harder questions, you've got to actually understand the principle of what makes a sufficient assumption work. And so I think this also relates to just simply knowing what to do when you see a flaw question versus knowing what a flaw question is asking for related to just the specific wording. Because they can have, the language is complex. You could have infinite words and phrases and synonyms to describe something. But as long as you actually know what they're getting at, you'll be able to get the question right. Yeah. One other thing I'd like to address in this point is it's not a strategy to pursue, it's a mistake to avoid. 
I see a lot of students who think like, all right, I'll start like in the 40s and I'll do I'll keep going up through the prep test and I'll end in the 80s. And I think this is a mistake because then you're preparing for an easier test. I think that your prep test should sort of jump around. Like you shouldn't just save all the most recent tests right before the exam. You should do some recent ones, some older ones and mix it up so that you've seen all the material. And I know that you guys do this because I see the stats on my site and the most recent tests get a lot more traffic right before test date. So this is clearly a popular strategy. Yeah, no, people definitely do that. And I agree there's definitely value in doing the newest exams early as well. So maybe you could do like all the odd numbered ones early and all the even numbered ones late. And then you could also save a handful of those to do if you ever need to do a retake in the future. Yeah, because while this while things have been changing, it's not like a super giant and a super rapid change. So first of all, if someone had nothing to prepare on but like LSATs 1 to 40, but they prepared well, they'd do just fine on like a new LSAT. Uh, they would have a slightly easier job of it if they had 40 to 86 or whatever, but they'd be fine just with the older stuff. It's just, you know, makes it a little bit harder, but not like, it's not giant. And the second thing is that, well, there's, you know, 86 and 85 are more representative currently than, like, 72 and 73. 72 and 73 are still harder than, like, uh, 58. The, the trend was already happening in the 70s. And so um, you don't need to just do, like, it's not like there's only three recent exams that will get you the, the uh, added difficulty and that's that. You've got, like, a fair range of stuff to choose from that's still, like, pretty useful on this front. Yeah, I'd say just to look at this question on a little bit more of a LSAT 101 level, any anything from the 50s and up is a good indicator. Like if you have the book of 52 to 61, you can start there and then do newer exams a bit later. Like you, that's perfectly fine to start with. It's not irrelevant. It's extremely relevant. And even the old book of 7, 9 to 16 and 18, that's okay. I don't think you'd want to waste time with it if you're studying to take the exam within the next several months because there's many more newer ones to do. But any actual official LSAT starting from June 91 is a good representation of the LSAT. Everything after that is more degrees degrees of minutia almost. The one thing I would say is definitely don't go to outside stuff like fake LSAT questions or GMAT critical reasoning. That is not representative. But new stuff, official LSATs, it's all good. Agreed. So next question. If you had a student getting more than five wrong on average on any given LR section, what would you suggest to do differently? What would you guess they're doing incorrectly? Uh, Steve, what do you think about this? More than five wrong, I'd say there's there could still be some foundational areas to work on. And more than five wrong, I think, is also a, a place where you can get, start to notice some trends in terms of question types. Maybe there's a disproportionate number of a certain question type you're getting wrong. So that's something to be looking for. I'd say that some analysis is definitely in order. But I, I'd also be looking at fundamentals, counterpositives, reversals, negations, things of that nature, chaining conditionals, dealing with annoying words like unless, except, until, without, things of that nature. Yeah, so I just looked at a scoring scale from LSAT 78, and if someone got like six wrong, six being more than five on each section, that would be 24 off, so they would be at uh, 161. And so I guess this question is maybe asking what should a, like a low 160 student do? Um, and I've noticed, and sorry, I, 
I, if I repeat anything you said, because I was like looking that up while, while you were talking, so I may have missed it, but I think you were saying like basically work on the fundamentals, right? Yeah, I was, I was listening to some fundamentals and also saying to look for question types. Yeah. Um, my experience of people in the 160s versus like the 150s and the 170s is like at the 150s, people may have trouble understanding, like even understanding some of the concepts um, and they will make mistakes with them. Um, at the 160s level, people generally understand the concepts, but then don't always apply them correctly. And at the 170s level, people pretty much understand everything, often even intuitively. They just get tripped up on like the very hardest stuff. Um, so what I would say is like a easy error at like the 160s level is to think that just because it makes sense when you read it, that you've got it as good as you need to have it. Um, but at the 160s level, when you're making mistakes in LR, like, well, actually, here's an interesting thought for you. Even the questions you're getting right, you don't fully understand. And you may need to review the hardest ones. Even some of the easiest ones you probably don't fully understand, but, like, that's not where I'd put my, my energy. But just know that, like, the most things that make sense when you read them, you can't quite trust your judgment because you don't know which skills you haven't mastered yet. And so you should always be looking and thinking, uh, do I understand this as well as I could? And what caused me to make this mistake and what could I drill or improve to prevent it? Yeah, I, I really like that you said that. I think this is a, a place where there's something big lacking. And if you understand intuitively but can't express it, there still is some room for deeper understanding. And so really analyzing your thought process, writing things out in detail, and then perhaps comparing it to explanations and forums and such to see what others have to say, to see whether your thinking is solid. But I think that sort of thorough, detailed analysis is something good to perform. Maybe not on all 12 questions if you're getting six wrong per section, if you, but maybe pick the hardest half of those and focus on those exclusively. Or maybe do all 12, that's fine. But I would say reduce the number of problems you're completing because I notice students do too many problems and review them in too little depth. So reduce your quantity of problems that you're attempting and increase the quality of your review process. Yeah, I can't emphasize uh, quality over quantity enough. Um, and one other thing that can help in review, this applies to all levels, but I think it's especially useful for this level, is get a good study partner and then talk about questions with them. Because the thing about a study partner is when they don't understand something, they're going to ask a question that like seems dumb maybe, but then when you try to explain it, you realize like, oh wait, I didn't understand that as fully as like I thought. Um, and then they will also point out stuff you didn't notice when talking about a question you got wrong and, and so on. It just, it's just a good way to broaden your knowledge because the thing about like talking to a tutor or using explanations or whatever is that we fully get the questions. So we sometimes just don't even notice some of the error points. Um, we try to notice the most common ones, but these questions are so intricate that like talking to someone else with pretty good knowledge but imperfect knowledge will actually like highlight a lot of things that the both of you are not aware of. That's a great point. Yeah. So if you're, let's say you're in the low 160s, you could potentially find someone who's in the 130s or 140s and you could, you could teach them a bit and they could point out some of those potential error points. So yeah, I think it's a great idea to do a study group, be, do a study partner, be, be a teacher to someone else. You can teach them for free and you'll both benefit from it. It's funny you mentioned, brought this up, Graham, because I was working with a student recently and she enlisted a friend of hers who's a philosophy major to help her prep for the LSAT on the side. And it's funny because philosophy majors are some of those who do the best on the LSAT on average. And I think it's 
maybe the kind of person who chooses to study philosophy and navigate these dense, intricate texts. But that explanation process was really valuable for her to have that friend on the side. And then another thing that has come up recently for me with the quality versus quantity thing, this same student actually was going through several LSAT sections a week and I encouraged her to cut it down a bit and do more review. And she was like, well, then I wouldn't be able to do as many questions. I don't have the time. And I was like, you do have the time if you just change how you allocate it. It's entirely possible to do less passages or less sec- fewer sections and review in more depth. No one is forcing you to do a certain number per week except yourself. Yeah, this might surprise some people, but I don't think I've done every LSAT prep test. Uh, I, in fact, there's probably like 10 to 20 I haven't done. I don't know. Some of the early ones, like I just, some of them I wouldn't have looked, uh, maybe not 10 to 20. But the point is, I've had years to do this and I haven't looked at all of them. And like the reason that I'm good at the LSAT is not because I looked at all of the LSAT questions. It's because I thought about the questions I was looking at. In fact, when I first started tutoring, I like I had a good score. Um, like I already had my official score at that point, 177. But I didn't really understand it as well as I do now. And at the time that I was tutoring, the book that everybody had was 29 to 38, because even though like there were newer prep tests, they hadn't released the book of 52 to 61. So there's this big gap. So 29 to 38 was the cheapest. So everyone had that. And when I was tutoring people, I just kept looking at these same 10 prep tests over and over and over and over. And that was the time that really like did the most from boosting me to like being intuitively good at the LSAT, but not really understanding what's going on, to basically being at my current level. I'd say the most progress came from just those 10 tests. It's kind of funny. Yeah, those that book of 10 exams, that's the same one that I was teaching for a very long time because they skipped the 40s book for a long time. And yeah, doing the same problems over and over and over, you get to know them inside out where you see over time every single trick. And through teaching students those same questions again and again, I'm sure, Graham, you also taught the same question or same game dozens of times. Yeah. And through that repetition, you see all the different ways someone could run into stumbling blocks on a particular question. There could be five tricks within a single LR question or five potential failure points. And with each student, you might see only one or two, but collectively you you end up seeing all five. And then when you write your explanations, you can lay out all those different tricks that re- every wrong answer choice would have been tempting potentially. Yeah, exactly. This, this race is an interesting strategy. Don't just get one study partner. Get like two or three and do the same prep test with all of them. So, you know, you're repeating some stuff and then you're going over the same things. And you're seeing what someone else thinks about it. You'll get different stuff each time. Yeah, that's a that's a great point. There's many different ways to get questions wrong. And so different people can point each of those out to you. Yeah, I don't know. That may be impractical for you know the purposes of studying for three months, but it's not a crazy strategy, especially if you're stuck in a plateau and have been studying for a while. It's something to consider. Yeah, well, if you did a proper group, like if you actually got a real group together instead of just one partner, I know people will actually do groups where they'll organize to meet at a library or a coffee shop or something, and you could get a recurring group of three to five people, and then you get to hear all those insights and different opinions along the way. Yeah, those are very powerful. You can do it online too with Skype. It works very well. Yeah, totally. And then also the thing you said about just doing 10 exams, Grandma, I love that because while I did end up doing every single release exam in in the course of my study process, it it took far too long. And I think that just doing a few exams and reviewing them in excruciating depth would have been far more valuable for me. So if you just have the 72 to 81 book or 52 to 61 book or whatever, those could be enough. I'm not saying you should only do 10, but you could only do 10. And that would be sufficient if you reviewed them over and over. 
All right, shall we go on to the next one here? All right, so what are your pacing guidelines for LR? That is, if you're taking an LR section, what minute marker do you like to be at after 10 questions or 15 questions? For example, do you like to have 20 minutes left for the remaining 10 questions on any given LR section? So yeah, there's lots of ways to slice and dice this. My general guideline, guideline that I give people is first 10 questions in 10 to 12 minutes if they're shooting for 160 or 165 plus. I don't think if you're lower, I wouldn't stress about the timing overall. I would maybe actually skip the toughest, but that's the general guideline that I give people. So that gives you about a minute, slightly more than that per question on the first 10. You build up a time bank so that you can cover the tougher questions with more time and then potentially have a few minutes left at the end to go back. What do you tell people, Graham? Pretty much just that. And I'd like to expand on the reasoning for first 10 to 10 minutes. This isn't like some, uh, I don't know, uh, how to put it. Basically, we talked about intuition. On the first 10, they're generally the easiest. And if you look at the super prep, they give like official difficulty ratings from LSAC. There's usually like one hard one in the first 10 and the rest are easy, maybe even up to about 12. Um, and then they get hard. So on the easy questions, that's where your intuition is likely to just work. Uh, especially if you're above like, I don't know, 155 or so. Um, you probably just have the intuition to get all of them, except that one hard question, right? Just by sort of going a bit faster than you feel comfortable with. But then once you get to the hard questions, uh, your intuition will work for some of them, but on others it'll break. And so you need to slow down and to be able to think like, all right, I need to actually think this through. But if you force yourself to go faster than you feel comfortable with on the first 10, you're probably fine. And, you know, like adjust to this. If, if like you're doing first 10, 10 minutes and you're making three errors each time, well, don't do it and do something different because it's, it's clearly not working the way it's intended to. But for most people listening to this, you can just push yourself faster and you're not going to have any problems in the first 10, maybe even first 12. Uh, I don't know if anyone's 10, 10 minutes is like nice and catchy. Did, do you find like up to 12 they're, they're easy or where do they start getting hard? I think they really start getting hard in the late teens. Like I usually say that 15 through 22 or 23 is the hard band. But yeah, there could be an el a number 11 that's hard. It's a little bit scattered. It's not a perfect yeah. order of difficulty. So, I think it is a general order. I should check the super prep again. But I know then that like definitely the first 10 and 10 is like a safe way. And maybe like 11 and 11 or 12 and 12 might actually be safe too. Like basically just looking for those questions where your intuition's going to be fine even if you don't feel you've done a complete job but that's not how you want yeah. to approach the hard questions exactly so thanks for laying that out Graham. so yeah there is that that general order of difficulty which is why you want to I, I think of it as like blasting through the first 10 or so to because you don't need all that time you don't need to second guess yourself or rethink these questions over and over they are as easy as they seem for the most part and you're better off investing that time later and it can feel a little bit like you're like you're rushing but you kind of need to the LSAT is a strictly timed exam the time constraint is insane and it's and I think of it almost as an unreasonable time constraint it's not meant for people to be able to finish it and so if your understanding is good and you want to push limits and of course reach the end of the section and get down to perfect or close to it then you've got to invest that time later where it's actually needed yeah and so the four smarts through the first 10 basically frees up three questions to invest on later harder questions. Um, so beyond the first 10, though, I don't really have a, like, be at this point at this minute guideline. Instead, I tend to focus on, like, uh, specific questions and basically, like, take as much time as you need 
but also know when to cut your losses. And this applies mainly to LR. In fact, I think these like first 10 and 10, obviously first 10 and 10 only applies to LR because you just can't, it doesn't work on LG and, and RC because they're broken up into like seven or five questions for the, the first game and passage. Um, but what I tell people is like, you know, read the stimulus. If you don't understand it, read it again. Um, then move on to the answers. If you're down to like a couple and you uh, still feel like there might be something you can see, look up at the stimulus again and see if that gets it. And if you're still lost, then move on because you don't want to sink three minutes into a question when that question is worth no more than any other question. But if you do that process that way, it usually doesn't take more than like a minute and a half, two minutes or so, depending on like how much work it involved. And that I find keeps you like relatively safe in that you're, you're giving it a good effort, but you're not just spinning your wheels. I think that's a good guideline. Yeah. You want some sort of hard and fast cutoff where at least you can notice that you're kind of stuck in a rut. And so you don't want to keep investing more and more time into a question if you're not going to make headway. And so there is this idea, yeah, cut your losses, move on, hope to come back later with that time bank. If you have a few minutes left at the end, you can go back and give it another shot. Maybe that gives you a fresh perspective to break out of what might have been tunnel vision. Yeah. And I'll reiterate that, you know, if you get it down to two, that's worth half a point on average. And the final two questions tend to be easier. So there's like a bonus for managing your time well and getting to the end of the section. But that the main thing to target is like not do i know what's going on in the question but instead do i know when i'm stuck and that's the main thing i think about for timing and that otherwise like you don't want to be too rigid because some questions rightly take like i don't know two and a half minutes and another might take 45 seconds um and that it's that makes it hard to give like an exact metric yeah, it's, it's too ambiguous. The order of difficulty is not perfect. But I like what you said, Graham, about the last few questions being easier because a little bit easier because it raises this question I hear a lot from students, some people who really want to get fancy with the pacing strategies. They'll say, should I do the first 10 and 10, then jump to the end and go backwards or something like that because they know that the 24 and 25 are going to be a little bit easier maybe. And my intuition says that it's, it's not good to start mixing around things around too much. Have you heard that one? I've heard it a lot, and I can say that in all my years of tutoring, I have never heard of a single success story where someone attributed it to clever question order. Yeah, it gets it gets too complicated, especially if someone's doing the digital LSAT in the future. I can imagine just all the complications and clicking around and trying to figure out what you've done, what you haven't. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It'll be a disaster in the digital one, <laughs> um, or at least I think. I don't know. Maybe you can just click to a forward question. But I, I think you, I think you can. But still, I think it just adds so much mental overload. The number of things that you're thinking about. You know, we always talk about your short-term memory, the things that are bouncing around your head at once, and just to add on that other additional layer of stress. Yeah, you want I to think, be thinking about the question in front of you rather than like where you are. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's I think that's a good way to put it. Because there's like there's like a, a a cost in doing things as well as a cost in deciding what to do. And if you add on the cost of deciding what to do, I think that's where that overhead comes from, and it can just be super draining. Same goes for like jumping around with games or passages, for me at least. Yeah. All right. All right. Next question is: I'm finishing the logical reasoning section with a few minutes now, typically. How do I best use that extra time? So I think the best way to use it is to, uh, first of all, potentially take a little break like we talked about earlier. But then 
I do the following in like order of priority. I first go back to questions I flagged as like, you know, I'm actually not sure about this and I'm stuck. For me, that's often like two to three a, question, a section. I focus on those and I do that. If you get through all of those, the next thing I do is I just like really quickly look at each question and think like, does this make sense? Like, you know, I'll maybe like glance at the conclusion, glance at the answer and just make sure I didn't do anything crazy. And I'm, I'm really talking about like a 10 second glance at each question, um, even less potentially. Like it, it's, it's really quick. And then if I'm done that, then I just look and check, like, did I bubble everything correctly? This won't be relevant on the digital L set anymore. I guess you can check, like, did I click the right thing? Because sometimes people, you know, they mean that they choose B and maybe you click C. Um, but I, I just do that in order of priority. So I focus on the stuff I'm unsure about. Then I just quickly look everything over. Then I double check to make sure I just didn't, like, miss bubble, which is only relevant for paper. That's a solid strategy. I think the biggest thing I focus on is the first thing you said, you're flagging questions that you flagged. And I typically flag three to six questions even. Typically not six, but maybe three to four most often on average. And so those questions that I flagged, I would go back and attempt those. And I typically bubble question by question. And so I'm not really concerned about misbubbling. That's probably not something I end up having time to double check. But in an ideal world, I would both do all the questions I flagged as well as double check the bubbling. Oh yeah. To be clear, I usually don't end up doing that. That's just like, rather than sit and twiddle my thumbs, if I still got time left, I will do that if I've like run out of other productive things to do. But yeah, it's definitely not a priority. I have my own check when I bubble. I'll, I'll just double check that I did the bubbles right at the moment that I'm making them. Um, you did remind me of something. I, I Sorry, I said I'm like, I have like two that I'm flagged. Uh, sorry, I, I misspoke. I forgot thing. I have two that like, you know, I just really don't know the right answer. Then may, I maybe have like four or so where like, I've got the answer. I think it's right. But I really want to spend a bit more time to think about it because I'm not sure. Okay. Yeah. That's a good distinction. Yeah. I also have like, to be even more specific on this, I'd say that there's probably two or three that I just don't want to deal with in the moment when I first encounter them. So I might not even try. Like if there's a lengthy parallel question or principal application question that takes up half the page and I can see there's multiple conditionals going on. I might not even bother with it in the moment. I just say, I don't want to deal with you. I'm going to come back later. And I trust that I'll be able to come back later because I've done enough sections where my pacing is fairly secure and reliable. So I know I'm going to be able to come back to it. And that's something to, I think, develop comfort comfort with over time as you do lots of timed LR sections. Like first is accuracy, then there's pacing. Like this is a stage I think it's worth spending a lot of time on. Oh, yeah, that's fair. I don't do a ton of that on LR. Well, I mean, sometimes I'll do it like mid-question where I'm just like, Ugh, this is going to be too much work and I'll, like, I won't have really finished the analysis and I'll just skip because I know I'm like just stuck in a rut and missing something. But I mean, like, you know, I do that like 45 seconds rather than like two minutes because I'm just like, something's wrong, I'm, I'm leaving. But uh, I do do that on games in RC. Often, like within the passage, I'll just skip a question and be like, eh, not even going to try this now. And then I'll come back mm -hmm. at the end of the passage of the game. Yeah, yeah, I think that's also good. There's order of difficulty, order of approach in those sections, which we can cover another time. But I think what's happening for me with these tough LR questions is that I look at it and I do experience that initial fight or flight panic mode. That happens to me. It still does happen to me. And I'm like, how long is this going to take? I still have five other questions after. And so I think that's why, honestly, I don't want to deal with it in the moment. I just yeah. think this is going to be too hard. And so I think to myself, well... I'll come back to it later when at least I've handled everything else so that I don't need to be stressed about completing other stuff while I do this. Oh, right. Yeah, I meant to say that's a totally valid strategy if, and 
you get that fight or flight. And I think I get it more on like games or reading, which is why I do it there and not LR. But like if that's happening to you on LR, it's totally valid to be just like, well, just going to skip this and like not trigger to panic. And, you know, obviously you don't want to get into a headlong rush where you then like skip five questions because like, you know, you just are panicking. In that case, just take a break and breathe. But uh, you can totally like contain panic by just seeing panicking stimulus. Uh, sorry, I don't mean LR stimulus. I mean panicking like event uh, or thing and realize like, well, don't like this. Just skip the next and the next is non-panic and you just move on. I think that's totally valid. Yeah, and that can also calm you down a bit, too, because then you get a few more right ones under your belt. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, and then you come back, and I'm like, oh, well, why was I panicked about this? Like, it's just uh, because you're not panicking for an intrinsic reason. You're panicking for, like, your brain was just, like, doing some dumb misfire, and so you make the brain happy by getting some stuff that it does well, and then you come back, and then, yeah, I think it's very important to keep that in mind and just, like, managing your brain as a skill on LR sections. Yeah, yeah, thanks for that. I think I feel better about it now, honestly. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> well, no, like like I said, I do it on, on LG all the time. I'm just like, ah, I don't like this, and I'll come back. And, like, it's not actually necessarily a hard question. It's just, like, the kind of question my brain didn't like at the moment. Um, yeah, and there's, it's funny. There's ways that you can deal with that and still get the questions right in the end. I think that's the nice thing about this is that there are strategies, there are techniques you can use even within these time constraints. Yeah, because basically – oh, sorry, go ahead. No, no, you go ahead, please. I was going to say, the thing to keep in mind is that, like, you know, if you go into a question and you spend a minute, like, blankly staring at it and you get nothing done and you're just panicked and you move on, well, that's a real loss. You lost a minute. It's not a terrible loss, to be clear. Like, that shouldn't throw off your whole section, but it is a loss. But if you just look at a question, you're like, nope, and, like, skip it within two seconds, you've lost nothing. Uh, so, like, it's a totally valid strategy. Yeah, that's why I like it, because I just don't even get invested in the first place. Yeah, exactly. Much smarter than, like, investing time when you're not in the mind frame to deal with it. Yeah. I wonder how this applies to relationships. I think there's probably some analogy there. But we can <laughs> say that for another time. <laughs> yeah. Good All right, time. so this last question's kind of tied in to what we've just been talking about, I think. How to know when to skip LR questions i.e. how to know when to skip and then come back when you have more time. This is kind of just what we've been talking about already. Yeah. So but they're I think, asking it very directly now. Yeah, so I think I pretty much covered this from my end for like how I skip when I'm in a question and also when I skip uh, like just questions in general. But did you? I don't think you talked about like how you skip a question that you've already started doing. So tell us about that. So there are certain patterns in question types that I decide to skip. If they're on topics I don't like. So if they're really heavy duty technical science questions, if they're questions on philosophy and aestheticism with lots of advanced vocabulary words and abstract language, those are probably the ones I'm most likely to skip aside from those that are particularly lengthy, like parallels and principal application. If it takes up half the page and it's kind of like you're reading six dense stimuli for the value of one correct answer or point, then I decide that I might not want to deal with it in the moment. Those are particularly what I look for, but I'm wondering, you said you you skip more on games and reading comp, but is there anything that you might particularly want to skip in LR? Actually, no. And I, sorry, I just wanted to clarify one thing. When you said you skip the technical ones, so that after you started reading them, you're like, ah, too hard getting out of here. Or do you skip them like in advance? I would still read it to see if maybe there's an underlying method of reasoning or abstract formula that I can see that will help me just diagram it to get out to get out of dealing with that maybe but if not and I feel like I just, one quick read maybe 15 30 seconds of the stimulus I see that nothing's changing for me then 
I might just skip it and say I'm not dealing with it. Yeah, okay. So anyway, you asked, uh, like, is there any type of question that I skip? No. But I do do something where, like, if I see, like, sometimes I will see a really long parallel reasoning get that little bit of, like, fight or flight. But what I do instead, and this is just uh, for me personally, skipping is, like, totally valid. I just, like, pause and, like, breathe a couple times and go, like, wait, I know how to do these. Because, like, that's one of the things I teach, actually. Like, I, I think there actually is, like, a fast method to do even long parallel reasoning because you can... Uh, basically just sort of get the structure map it out and then skim the answers and see like nope nope maybe nope maybe based on like structural stuff for example if the conclusion has some and then you see a conclusion is a conditional you're just like nope and it's just like it's not a hard eliminate um but it's like this is like 85 percent not the answer and i narrow it down to like the two that even have some in the conclusion and then i just look at those so that's my method for going faster on those and so because I know I have that method, personally, it, it actually doesn't take me any longer on them. And so I don't skip them instead. But it still does look scary to see the half a page of, of words. So I just pause and like I breathe and remind myself of that. Yeah, no, the tricks for parallels are really good. If there was a case where, let's say, you could do that sort of matching with quantifiers or degrees of certainty, then I would definitely also look to at least eliminate a few. Maybe I'd be down to two and not sure between them pick one, but still flag it, even bubble that one in still, but flag it as like something to go back to if I have the time later. Yeah. And I do want to clarify something too, because I don't think people should take from what I'm saying to be like, never skip an LR thing. I'm saying I don't skip LR, but I do skip LG. And why do I skip like an LG one? It's because when I look at it, I'm like, this is currently hard for me right now. And I skip it. And it just so happens that I don't have a particular thing in LR that I find hard, but that's because I'm an LSAT tutor and I've done this for years. And like, that's not, that doesn't apply to people studying for the LSAT. Obviously most people studying are going to have something that is hard for them in particular. And so that might be the kind of thing that if I was in that situation, I would skip just like, um, I do skip on LG because there are moments where I'm just like this thing in this moment is hard for me. And I don't want to switch mental gears and, uh, really go into it and I don't want to break the flow and I'm just going to keep going and I'll come back later. So I just want to like differentiate between like what I do personally and the right process. I think the right process for most people would be skipping things they find subjectively hard and coming back when they have like, you know, like, okay, I finished the section. I can relax. Like I've just got this one question, but it doesn't really matter because I've already finished the stuff past it. So even if I take three minutes, who cares, you know? Yeah, totally. I'm curious though, what, because there are some that I skipping, I also have my own particular order for games, but I'm wondering for you, since you did mention you skip games questions sometimes, which question might you skip and why? I'm sure people are wondering the specifics on that. Yeah. So I don't think it's actually a specific type. It more depends on the context. Like there are times when I see a thing, it's like, which of the following must be true. And there are times I just look at it and I'm like, oh, like it's obviously B. And there are times I look at it and I'm just like, I have no idea. And, you know, the question can either take me, like, seven seconds or three minutes, depending on, like, the specific structure of the game. So I'll look it over, and if nothing's obvious and I don't even see a way to get to anything, I'll just skip it. Whereas sometimes it's obvious to me, and uh, I don't need to worry about skipping it. So it's not like I look at the type and, and think that. Like, another example would be, you know, like, which of the following could be true. And in a lot of cases, it's really obvious based on the structure of the game. In a lot of other cases, I'm just like, I see no way of doing this, but drawing like five separate scenarios. And this is, uh, seems like a big waste. 
and I'm just going to skip this for now, and once I understand the game better, I'll come back to it, and it'll hopefully be easier. Yeah, it's funny you brought up that example, because I think that there are definitely cases where I run into the same situation, and I think that you can choose to do the game's questions as well in an order that works for you. You can maybe gain new hypotheticals in the future or new insights into a, a game in the future that then upon coming back to that same question later, it's totally unlocked and obvious for you. So there's yeah. no obligation to do any of this in order, really. Yeah, and I, I could see the same thing happening to me in the LR. Like, it could be that, like, at some point, some question will come up, and I look at it, and I'm just like, whoa. Like, I, ooh, uh, huh? Like, it just... I have the same reaction to when I see like a must be true in a game and I'm just like, this is making no sense. I would just skip at that point. If I had taken like 20 seconds to start reading it, like usually what happens is I'll sort of understand. I don't understand fully. I'll go back, I'll reread it. And I'm like, okay, this makes sense now. And I'll keep going. But I could imagine a question coming up where I'm just like, wow, ooh, no, it just, this isn't working right now. And then I would skip. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks for clarifying that. All right, so we've hit all the questions here. Um, anything else you think we should cover on logical reasoning for today? Yeah, uh, I guess I'll just leave off with like a general point about logical reasoning. And it's a bit different than reading comp and games. And I'll, I'll first talk about reading comp and games. Reading comp, you can pretty much solve everything just by finding the right passage reference. Uh, a bit less on the newer things that are becoming more LR-like, but that's LR and I'll cover that. Uh, games, likewise, it's the sort of thing where there's like basically mathematical certainty about all the stuff and once you fully understand the rules and apply them it's like a thing that um, can be calculated like you know that doesn't make it easy but it's something that you can calculate but LR LR is something special in the English language it has incredible layers of depth such that college graduates that's you the listener going to law school have difficulty understanding everything it says. And I think the philosophy uh, thing you mentioned earlier is really on point. I read a philosophy text once. I just like joined a friend's philosophy reading group. And it was like 80 pages of completely pointless discussion about a thing, but that was all logically sound. So like I read the whole thing and I understood where he was going and it made no difference to anything in the real world, but it had certain interest to it to just like understand what he was talking about. Um, and it was incredibly dense, and you had to make these links from uh, start to finish and throughout. And just know that, like, the LR thing you're looking at is really, really deep and layered, even though it's short. Um, they're written by philosophers. And so one of the biggest errors I see people making in LR is thinking that they understand something when they've only understood 75% of it. And it's that 25% that's causing you to make an error on some other question. And so you've just really got to always, always, always be testing your understanding by talking to other people, by writing stuff down, by reading things, by thinking, like, do I really understand this? And just not pat yourself on the back and say, like, I understand these concepts because it's really, really deep and has depth. Like, I'm still seeing new stuff in LR uh, even now, even on, like, questions I've done before, even on questions I've explained before. I'll go back and I'm like, oh, actually, there's, like, one other aspect that I missed here. Um, even though I've looked at the question like 10 times. So basically you have no hope of fully understanding it, but you also don't need to fully understand it to get a good score. But just know that you're always just moving up a spectrum of understanding more than before, and it's never like black and white, understood versus not understood. Wow, Graham, thanks for laying that out. I, I So much of what you said really spoke to me. I think in particular the the deep layers involved in logical reasoning questions, the... 
LSAT is like dense philosophy text, but it's almost in a way it's more carefully cra crafted and more compact. And like yourself, I'm still learning along the way. It's been a very long journey of over 10 years now for both of us, I think. And it's just crazy how at this point we're still seeing new stuff in these exams, in these questions. I'm actually, I've become friends with a former writer of actual LSAT questions. I did a interview with him on YouTube recently and we were talking and he's a former, he's a philosophy PhD and he was laying out all these different tricks they use, but there, there are so many tricks they can weave into these dense passages that there is always a lot to unpack. And so I think talking with people, talking with friends, talking with experts, going online, talking with study groups, I think there's a lot you can draw out and it's not enough to just, of course, go to the answer key or go to the explanations and say, I get it now. I think you actually have to speak this out a bit in order to clarify and, and improve your thinking. And I'm sure that, Graham, with this podcast we're doing, I'm sure we're, we're learning a lot together just talking through this. It's funny how there's something about speaking about this stuff that helps clarify it. Yeah, definitely. Stuff that feels clear in your mind becomes less clear when you say it out loud. Yeah, definitely. And uh, just one little thing, like I... I don't know, but you could maybe say about the exact numbers, but uh, I think like a lot of LR questions could have like 20 to 30 ways or more that are planned to make you make a mistake and not you specifically because you're only vulnerable to like three of them. But there's like a bunch of different ways that different people approaching it from like different mindsets will be tripped up by intentional traps. Oh, totally. Yeah, I definitely see that. I try to draw them out and talk about the biggest ones when I work with students. But yeah, I'd say that there are typically on a question, I might articulate at least five of the traps for a student. And I'm sure there are many more there potentially as well. It's all dependent on someone's unique thought processes, but yeah, they're in there for sure. Yeah, yeah exactly. Like I'll, someone will come to me and they'll say like, well, I was thinking about this answer. And I think like, why would you even think that answer? But then they'll say something like, oh, okay. Yeah. I can see that if you had like that assumption, like then this answer would make sense. And like, it's not the right assumption to make, but I think it was planned that maybe like 4% of people would be thinking X. And so when they look at the question, they'll pick B, um, even though 96% of people would be like, of course not X. Why would it be X? But like the trap is still there for that 4%. Yeah, definitely. I think one of the most classic ones would be, let's say there's a necessary assumption question and someone is thinking about it as if it were a sufficient assumption. That's like one trap that someone could fall into very naturally. Mm -hmm. but i'm talking even like the level of like i don't know they choose a certain word that like prompts you to like think something and then you make an incorrect assumption that like isn't supported by the stimulus and so when you look at an answer you've got that assumption in your mind as being like something that's also true and so answer b makes sense but oh yeah i think on a on a deeper level that definitely comes up like especially if a certain word has a certain connotation or maybe a certain definition or way it's used in everyday speech that I think those are the sorts of things that are almost harder to articulate because they just play on a natural inclination towards something. Is yeah. that kind of what you're getting at? Yeah, pretty much. Or even like even like an accurate understanding of the word will prompt a thought and the person thinks that like a thing must be some way, but actually it doesn't have to be that way. Um, that's just like an assumption they have in life about a certain thing and they've never considered that this thing may not always be so. And I'm sorry I'm being like a little vague. Because, like, I'm trying to speak generally, but I'm trying to think of a, I don't know. I've got one. So, like, this could this could come into methods of reasoning, for example. There's a question in that 29 to 38 set we were talking about. I think it's an exam 38, actually. It's about this doctor who 
want, it's something about banning smoking, but the doctor actually is advocating a ban on smoking in public spaces, even though the doctor himself or herself is a smoker. And so it's like, why would a doctor be a smoker because doctors are supposed to be healthy? That's like one preconceived notion we have. And then a smoker who wants to ban smoking, why would a smoker want to ban smoking? Smokers should want there to be smoking everywhere. And so these yeah. are sorts of methods of reasoning that are like are not natural and maybe they're unlikely to occur in the real world, but they're still entirely possible and they do occur in the real world sometimes. Yeah. Basically it's like it's nuance. There that that there's always a nuance to like most situations and if you don't view a situation with nuance, you can like fall into a trap. Yeah, black and white thinking. I think black and white thinking is the enemy. We want nuance. We want to acknowledge that things can be multifaceted and I think and complex. And that's what lawyers have to do, of course, as well. Yeah. And I'll just leave off with this then. There are no stupid mistakes on LR. Or a stupid mistake is like bubbling C when you meant to bubble B. That's stupid. That's a that's a stupid mistake of like, oh, I just shouldn't have done that. But a lot of other things of like, oh, well, why did I pick B? It's obviously D. Like, that was stupid. Well, they probably planned it. And that's what you got to think about. Like, how did they get me to choose B? It's not just you were dumb because so many people are like, oh, that was a stupid mistake. But that's not giving the test enough credit. You are probably intended to pick that based on the thing you were thinking. And you've got to figure out what was I thinking? How did they do this to me? Yeah, I like that. The The wrong answers are not random. They're, it's not like a math problem where a lot of answers really are just completely random. These wrong answers are crafted to trick you. And it's in a way, I think it's good when students make mistakes because it means they're attempting problems they don't know the answers to. And so the more mistakes you make now, the more review opportunities that you have to learn from those mistakes so that you'll make them now rather than on test day. I think the value in doing these questions is in getting them wrong so that you can review them. All right. That's all I got. You? All right. Totally. Um, aside from what we covered, we covered almost everything I can think of in a general sense. One thing I would leave students with is really looking at logical reasoning questions, not only by the question stem, but also by the stimulus. So asking yourself, is this a fact set or an argument? If it's an argument, is there a gap? There pretty much always is a gap. Then if there's a gap, is it small or big? Is it reasonable or unreasonable? And that line is kind of hazy and blurry, and that's kind of the point. It doesn't matter whether the gap is big or small necessarily. It's about in how LSAC frames it for you. So if you look at the question stem type, that can help guide you into how to view the stimulus. Is it a big gap or a small gap in that argument? How should you view the arguer as being reasonable or unreasonable and engage with it in that way as if someone were speaking with you? I think doing that really changed it for me oh yeah that's that is a good point i viewing those in those ways is very helpful and one other thing about the argument one specifically that i should add is i find like people don't focus enough on the conclusion i always look for that and i want to think okay what are they saying that's a conclusion why are they saying it that's the reasoning and then how could this be wrong and also sometimes like how could this be right will identify like wrong assumptions but you basically want to think well, what are they saying and why are they saying it will clarify a lot of stuff if you just really focus on those whereas if you don't have that focus it's easier to sort of drift around and i don't know not like most people getting above 150 can identify conclusions maybe even below 150 um like i don't know like i don't know what the minimum bound is for like reliably identifying conclusions it might be lower but there's a thing between being able to do it and like remembering to focus on it so 
I would say remember to focus on it. Yeah, definitely. Conclusion is a great starting point. All right, well, I think that about does it for now, Graham. Um, Want to wrap up here? All right, best way for folks to reach you? It's uh, lsathacks.com, and the best way to get in touch is on Instagram. It's Graham underscore Blake. That's G-R-A-E-M-E underscore Blake. And I'm Steve Schwartz over at the LSAT blog. You can email me lsatunplugged at gmail.com or visit me on YouTube at youtube.com slash LSAT blog. All right. Thanks for listening to LSAT Pros, everyone. See you next time.